Today we are continuing in our series based on Adam Hamilton's book, Unafraid. We're on week three, uh, looking at fear of the other. I'm going to read to you three scriptures today as we prepare uh, for this sermon. The first is from the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to you from the ground. Our second reading comes from Psalm 46. I know this is a favorite for many of us, reading just portions of that powerful psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. The nations are in an uproar, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And our final reading comes from the gospel according to John in the eighth chapter, verses 32. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. All of these are the words of God for all the people of God. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words that I say and the reflections that go through all of our minds, may these give you pleasure, God, you who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. When have you felt different? When have you been afraid of someone you felt was different? When have you been blessed by someone who was different? When I was a little girl, uh, my family lived in Whittier, California. And what I didn't realize was that Whittier was a very segregated town. It was a portion of the city where we lived, which was almost all Anglo. But across the street was a different part of town, which was almost all Chicano. I want to show you my fifth grade class. So Sam, if you can put that slide up on the screen. Here is my fifth grade class, Miss Lewis's class at Mar Vista School. I know we look very early 70s. But when you look at this picture, there are a whole lot of those kids that could be me. So let's get on this first row. She could be me. She could be me. Up here, she could be me or her or her or her or her or her or her or her. There are a whole bunch of those kids that you could look up and, you know, it's kind of a grainy picture. That could be Jane. As it turns out, there I am, lovely stringy, kind of blondy brown hair, my fifth grade class. But my elementary school, I looked pretty much like everyone else did. Then I went to junior high. And what happened at junior high was these predominantly Anglo elementary schools got merged in with these predominantly Chicano elementary schools and suddenly we're all in junior high together. And I remember being in that school 
And like, where did all these kids come from? We didn't, I didn't know them. I remember I had a mad crush on Alex Castaneda. Oh, he was gorgeous. He had beautiful, thick black hair. He had gorgeous, dark brown skin. He had the whitest teeth. And he had this smile that just lit up. He was totally out of my league. <laughs> but I had such a crush on Alex Castaneda. But I remember a feeling that I was not supposed to have a crush on Alex Castaneda. Now, had my parents said anything like that? No, never. My parents are very broad-minded people. Had my teachers said that? No. But somehow, it was just like it was in the air. Anglo girls did not date Chicano boys. Oh, no. I remember that. As I tell that story, I bet many of you have similar stories in your mind. Maybe it wasn't Anglos and Chicanos. It was a different group. But there was some other group, maybe a different ethnicity, maybe a different part of the Christian family, maybe a different religious tradition that you were not supposed to be attracted to. And you might have been never told it. You just kind of in, received it in the air. Or you might have been told very explicitly, don't you ever come home with one of those fill in the blank. There's something in our human condition where we tend to go off into tribes. We tend to go off into groups of like-minded or like-looking people. We're off in our tribes, and we don't know each other, and we often fear the other or even hate the other. This is such old stuff. And if we want to know where it begins, we go back to the Bible, and we find it in the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 4, we read about Cain and Abel. God has created the heavens and earth. God has made men and women in God's own image. Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent in the garden. They were kicked out of the garden. Now we're in chapter 4, and Eve gives birth to Abel and Cain. We learn that Abel is a shepherd and Cain is a farmer. And we learn that each of them off made offerings to God, but God preferred Abel's offering. That really made Cain angry. And Cain lured his brother out away and murdered him. God knew what Cain had done and said, where is your brother? And Cain, why, how do I know? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Cain gave God attitude. <laughs> Am I my brother's keeper? And God says, what have you done? Listen, the blood of your brother calls up from the ground. The answer to the question, am I my brother's keeper, is yes. <laughs> yes, you are your brother's keeper. But throughout history, we can have a very hard time living up to what God is teaching us in that early, early story of the human experience. Over the centuries, people have studied the story of Cain and Abel and have tried to understand what it might be describing. Is it a story of just sin and the way that we fight against each other as human beings? Some people see it as a story of sibling rivalry and will look to that as the first time that siblings jockeyed against each other and fought against each other and caused one another to suffer. 
Others will point to their professions and say, see, Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. And they look to records of early civilization where sometimes the the sheep, the shepherds, the people who took care of animals who tended to migrate along with the animals were in rivalry or competition with the farmers, the people who stayed in one place and tilled the ground. So you'd have these fights between farmers and shepherds or other animal herders. And that can sound ridiculous, but think of the musical Oklahoma. Some of us know the musical Oklahoma. What's one of the songs in the Oklahoma? The farmer and the cowman should be friends. In Oklahoma, there's a battle between the farmers and the cowboys, and they will have none of it with each other. And there's a song about how the the groups needed to connect across that divide. We live in a time and a place, like all of these times and places, where there are these kinds of divides. The farmer and the cowman divide sounds ridiculous. But those divides persist even unto our day and our community. When I first moved here to Rockford, immediately people started telling me about Rockford history. And I was told very early on, now you know, early Rockford, the Swedes were in the east side and the Italians were on the west side. And the Swedes and the Italians did not like each other, did not date each other, totally separate worlds. I thought, Swedes and Italians? Are you kidding me? But it wasn't just that. Then I was told about Swedes and Norwegians and how a Swede marrying a Norwegian was a mixed marriage. I thought, you have got to be kidding me. Now, I will tell you, after I've talked about this in my different services, people have come up to me and said, you just talked about my childhood and my grandfather who wouldn't talk to us because he was Swedish and his son married a Norwegian girl there was an intense difference between the Swedes and the Norwegians. And there were men singing choruses. There was Svea Sonar for the Swedish men, but there was the Harmony Club for the Norwegian men. That kind of divide. This stuff is persistent. And although we kind of laugh at the Swedish-Norwegian thing now, there are other divides that persist in our culture How do we get beyond that tension of the other or that avoiding the person who is the other? I want to reflect with you on two challenges or difficulties as we talk about that sense of the other whom we don't know and then lift up the tremendous resources we have in our Christian faith for how to address these differences and move beyond them. But first, the challenges. One challenge is we simply do not know each other. That is, was brought home to me in a very painful way just this past Friday. I went to the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. luncheon, the Rockford Ministers Fellowship, which is predominantly African-American, every year hosts a variety of events over King weekend. And on Friday, there's a clergy luncheon. Sunday night, there's usually a religious service. And then Monday morning, there's a community-wide event. So Friday, I went to the clergy lunch uh, Joe Reynolds was there too. Nice to see you, Joe. We had the clergy lunch on that Friday. I looked around the room. I knew most of the Anglos in the room. I go to a lot of ecumenical and interfaith events. I knew some people from a clergy woman group I was in. I knew some people. There used to be an organization called Gurkha or Greca, the Greater Rockford Clergy Association. It used to meet every month. I met a number of people through that group. So I looked around. I 
I didn't know all of them, but I knew the majority of the Anglos in the room. I did not know the majority of the African-Americans in the room. In fact, I knew almost none of them. I knew Mrs. Annie Davis, Reverend Annie Davis, who's a Pentecostal preacher in this town, has been here for decades. I'd met her through Greca. Now, I know other African-American clergy. I know Calvin Culpepper and Montel Putney, but they're United Methodists. They're part of my tribe. It's easy to know them. There are a lot of structures which help me know them. And I know Reverend Dr. Kenneth Board. He and I co-officiated Steve Kaiser's funeral together, and I'd met him at other events. I didn't know anyone else. Shame on me. Afterward, I was trying to describe this to someone, and they said, no, you're, you know, you're just, you're all busy, and trying to poo-poo what I was feeling. I said, no, you need to hear me. The white clergy, we know each other. The African-American clergy know each other. But across the groups, we often do not know each other. And that is a sign of sin, my friends. I drove away so chastened, thinking about how have I been here this long? And I know most of the Anglos. I don't know most of the African-Americans. I need to work on that. I need to make an effort to, to cross that divide. So first, there's the challenge of simply not knowing each other. There's also the challenge that many of us feel of what worrying to, about saying the wrong thing. We worry about using the wrong term. We worry about saying something that might be offensive that we don't even know about, and that can stifle us and keep us back from reaching out. I've made those mistakes. I continue to make those mistakes. I have uh, an example that is particularly poignant for me because in my late 20s, I was sent in missionary service to the Middle East, and I lived in the Palestinian community. Now, I worked with a Palestinian Christian uh, health clinic, and it was an amazing experience to learn about the riches of Middle Eastern Christianity, which, of course, extends back to Jerusalem to the time of Jesus. <laughs> there have been Middle Eastern Christians since the birth of Jesus. Uh, it was really powerful to get to know that strand. But even more powerful for me, that was the first place I ever had Muslim friends. I'd never had Muslim friends in the States, and... So many people in the Palestinian Muslim community welcomed me and were so kind to me and taught me about their faith tradition. It was an amazing experience. When I came back from there, I started hearing all this Muslim bashing, which is just in the air in so much of American culture, and I will not stand for it, because you're talking about my friends. <laughs> I just, I won't take it. I, the people that welcomed me, so many of them were Muslim. I came back to the States, and friends, I went right back into my Christian enclave, and I hung out with more Christians. Except, every once in a while, I meet someone whose name I look at and I think, they might be Arab or they might be Muslim. And then I want to say something. I remember a time I went with my father to a medical appointment, and his doctor had a long name that just looking at it, I knew it was an Arabic name. Um, it means the Rose of God. It ends Allah. And so I made a comment to like, oh, the end of your name is Allah. It's God. And his, he flinched. And I thought, oh, gal, what did I do? What was my context? What is his context? Sam, if you can get back there, bring up the picture again. But if you can't, don't worry about it. So my elementary school, here was my context. When I grew up as a kid, I fit right in. 
I looked like the majority of the kids. No one ever came up to me and questioned whether I was American. No one ever congratulated me on my English. No one commented about my accent. No one stared at me and said, what are you? I know you're wasp, but what kind of wasp are you? Never happened. I grew up in the majority. People didn't question me. They automatically assumed that I fit in. That's what my childhood was like. I just fit right in. I didn't know what it was like to have people continually ask you and try to place you, to see you as an object of curiosity. I learned the term microaggressions. Microaggressions is a term that's coined in communities of color to talk about what it feels like to have people, well, that's a weird name. What does that mean? Uh, well, what's that? Why do you wear that? All of the kind of little picky questions that get asked of minority communities. Well, why do you do that? Why do you have that thing on your head? All of that stuff, microaggressions. And it gets exhausting for people in the minority communities to get commented on, to be asked about. And it feels like aggression. And they get worn out. So although I was trying to make a connection with this physician, what I think he was experiencing was, oh great, another person commenting about my weird name. And I get, people don't do that to me. He just wanted to do his job. He just wanted to take care of my dad. This stuff is hard. Do we see that divide of who we don't know and how we might mess up and lose hope? No, we don't. Because we dig deep into our faith and the resources of our faith. We dig deep into that call by God that we are our brother's keepers. And in addition, that our brothers and sisters will keep us, that we are interconnected, that we are family. That is our birthright as people of faith. We dig deep into the Psalms, and God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So when we feel scared or out of place, we hold on to the strength of that promise in the Psalms. And we remember our baptismal callings. Last week, we renewed our baptismal covenant. And I know the words go so quickly, it's easy to miss things. But the second part of our baptismal covenant in our renewal service was this question. Will you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? Whenever we renew our baptismal covenant, we're reminded, that's right, as Christians, we're called to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. That's our calling through our baptisms. It's our job to resist. It's our job to work across those false barriers, to reach out and to care. But we don't have to do it on our own, and we don't have to do it by our own intellect or our own might Will you accept the freedom and power God gives you? We don't do it on our own, brothers and sisters. We do it with freedom and power. God empowers us. God enables us to reach across, to listen, to learn about other cultures and other faith traditions, and to do so with respect and faithfulness. And not only are we given freedom and power, we're given grace we have a God of second chances, and we're going to mess up in this work. But we can go to God and ask for forgiveness and a fresh start and wisdom. 
We can go to people whom we've harmed and ask for a fresh start. And new every morning are God's mercies as we do this work. As we live this time of knowing ourselves as our brothers and sisters keepers, we dig deep into the scriptures and see how they teach us this work. We see in the Hebrew scriptures the times that God used people outside the Hebrew people and the Jewish people to be messengers of God's love and grace. Look in Genesis, uh, where Abraham is just coming into Canaan. He's in the promised land. He's not yet settled with Sarah at Hebron. And he fights a battle, and he meets this king, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Melchizedek is not Jewish. But somehow, Abraham knows that he's a holy man. And when Abraham wins a a battle, he takes a tithe, one-tenth of his spoils of war, and gives them to Melchizedek as a thank offering. Somehow he senses the holiness of this other man and offers a thank offering to him. And when the Hebrew people had been, uh, the, Jerusalem and t- the Jerusalem temple had been vanquished and the elites had been taken back to Babylon and now they were living in exile in Babylon, God raised up Cyrus of Persia, not Jewish, Cyrus was Zoroastrian. Cyrus of Persia, who's the one who released the Hebrew people from Babylon, let them to go home and rebuild the temple. We go to the stories of our Gospels. Very early on in Jesus' healing miracles, a Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, my servant is sick, I need you to heal him. And Jesus is amazed. So many of his peers don't believe that Jesus is a healer. And here's this Roman centurion, the enemy, who believes that Jesus can heal his servant. And then we find the Syrophoenician woman, the woman who, again, was Syrophoenician, was not part of the Jewish community, who begged for Jesus to heal her daughter. When we read this story, at first Jesus balked at it, and he said, am I to take the food that is meant for the sons of Israel and give it to the dogs? And she does not miss a beat. She says, even the dogs eat up the crumbs from below the table. And Jesus is converted and realizes his mission is not just to the Jewish people, but also might be good news to the Gentiles. And when Jesus tells a story about someone who is a good neighbor, he doesn't tell a story about someone from their own Jewish community. He tells the story of the good Samaritan, the good other, the good Chicano, had we been in the white community in Whittier in the early 70s. The other is the one who shows us how to be neighbor. We have rich resources in our scriptural traditions for how God works across these false barriers of tribes, works to bring life and light. Brothers and sisters, I know that as I speak now about the Swedish-Norwegian thing, it sounds ridiculous. That is not a problem in 2019. Thanks be to God. And if you go back in researching the sermon, I found this wonderful picture of the Harmony uh, Club and the Svea Sonar who sang together. There's a wonderful picture on the internet of their combined choirs when they got together and sang together. What a moment of hope and joy that must have been in the Rockford community. I think about my own experience with Dr. Z, the, the doctor that I had pointed out was different when he was treating my dad. 
couple years ago, there was an incident um, someplace else in the country against the Muslim community. And a group of us gathered outside our mosque here in Rockford with signs of welcome and compassion. And I was standing there with one of my signs of welcome and compassion and out walked Dr. Z. God gave me a second chance. And I got to go up to him and thank him for his care for my father and to tell him my desire that he always feel safe worshiping in the Muslim community in Rockford. And we had this beautiful moment. God gave me another try at that relationship, and I'm so grateful. And I think about one of my favorite experiences from my first year in ministry. When I arrived, this congregation already had a relationship with Christ the Carpenter United Methodist Church. And so when I was new, I reached out to Pastor Montel Putney. He and his wife, Linda, are just treasures in this community. I remember the time they took me out for Chinese food. They loaded me up in their truck, and they took me on a tour of the mafia history of West Rockford. I knew none of this. This was so much fun. <laughs> they took me around, and they showed me the block. Now, the house is gone, but they showed me the block where when things were heating up for Al Capone in Chicago, he'd bring his mom out to Rockford to keep her safe. Here's, here's the block where that house was. Then he took me to this Italian Roman Catholic parish, St. Anthony of Padua. Have you ever been there? It is gorgeous. It's this gorgeous square block. Now, it is in the midst of gang territory. The buildings around it are run down and graffiti riddled. And then you see St. Anthony of Padua, and it looks like it dropped straight from Rome. I don't know what the deal is, but there is no graffiti on that parish. They've got something arranged with the neighborhood. It's the coolest thing. And then he took me just south of there a couple blocks and showed me the street where, in which you wouldn't know it driving along it, but all the basements are connected underneath the street because that's during the Prohibition era. There were bootleggers that lived along that street, and when there was a raid, they'd take all the hooch down to the basement underneath the street, and it'd be over on this side of the street. Some of you are nodding your heads. You know, I can't tell you which street it was. Montel took me there. But I thought... I love our God. Here I am learning mafia history from Montel Putney, who grew up in Tennessee, then came up to Rockford. And here I am from California and New Jersey and Jerusalem. And here we are today, and God has brought us together. Brothers and sisters, we are our brother's keepers. We are kept by our brothers and sisters. And this is a great joy. God made us to know one another, to care for one another, to welcome and be welcomed by one another. We have deep resources in our Christian faith to help us not to be afraid and not to hold back from one another, but to reach out and to receive in love and grace. Thanks be to God. Amen.